Welcome to our first podcast, Corona Stories, a place where people can be open and honest about their feelings and experiences of COVID, lockdown and related matters. We'll discuss here our motivation for setting up the Facebook group, Scottish Corona Stories, which is where this all began. Hello, Sylvia. Hello, Christine. So do you want to start, Christine, by telling people a bit about your background? Yes. I am... a physicist or I studied physics at university in Dundee and I graduated with first class honours and then I went on to study medical physics in Aberdeen and I've got a master's in that and then I have a postgraduate diploma in that qualification as well and I worked for six years in the NHS as a medical physicist specialising in radiation protection and then I gave up my job because personal circumstances my husband moved came up to Aberdeen sure to set up his business and uh, we had our children to look after and things so for the last eight years I've been most stay-at-home parent and I've done a lot of maths and physics tutoring so that's what I've been doing until I became what I am now <laughs> which is like a lockdown campaigner what about you well I studied law at Glasgow University and I got a 2-1 honours from there and then I did a legal diploma and then I worked in a law centre and then I became a local authority solicitor for nine years Mm -hmm. and then similar to you actually my husband moved jobs and we had to move from one end of the country to the other in the middle of my maternity leave and after that it meant that I couldn't really go back to my job and I became a stay-at-home mum. So for the last six and a bit years, Mm -hmm. I have been a stay-at-home mum. Quite often the stay-at-home mummies end up in that position almost by accident. It was never our plan. No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, by far the best and the worst job. And... (laughs) Since since doing then, I I have helped friends, uh, sort of informally with legal matters. So yeah, I've sort of dabbled in the law since. So I've sort of kept up to date. Yeah, and we live nearby one another, and we've become good friends. We have we've become very 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 good friends in the we last have. year. We have, and yeah. And been an invaluable support to me actually. I think for both of our mental health, having our friendship has been invaluable. It has. So, shall we talk a little bit about the first lockdown? Were we really alarmed by COVID? I think we were both really scared. I mean, I remember saying to my husband, I think I could die from this because I'm a little bit more vulnerable. And, you know, sort of saying, I think we need to lock down sooner than the official lockdown date. And you did, didn't you? We did. And... I think during lockdown, we really only kept in touch on Zoom crafting evenings, wasn't it? Yeah, we did a bit of that. And a few very lengthy phone calls. Yeah. We were quite happy and content for a while. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I would say I was ever well, content, but I kept myself busy. We did yeah, a lot of gardening projects. You transformed your garden. I did transform my <laughs> garden because I just didn't want to think about what was happening. It was... Yeah sort of displacement activity. And we were the same. 
if you'd asked me, I would have said in April, I was perfectly content with we were pottering around the garden. We transformed our garden a bit as well and got lots of jobs done. The weather was amazing. Mm -hmm. But I did feel really, I never felt that school worked very well. We, worked out for us. We had two different um, sort of experiences of schooling. Before the Easter holidays, um, we did a lot of our own kind of schooling and I kept in touch with my son's teacher and showed her what we had been doing. And then after Easter, the school introduced Seesaw and that really revolutionised our homeschooling mm -hmm. at that point. But it still wasn't easy, easy because I'm a toddler yeah. who didn't want me to school her her sibling <laughs> at all. No, she didn't think that was reasonable at all. Yeah. We just always used Google Classrooms at our school and we did not enjoy that at all. So how when do you think your lockdown discomfort started? I don't think I was ever happy about lockdown, but I, th I thought it was necessary yeah. and I thought it would be for a short duration. But I think there was always a little niggle in my head about whether actually it would work. I think I thought if it protected the NHS from overwhelm, mm -hmm. that it was necessary. But I think after that, I kind of, just from background knowledge of medical matters, felt that you just can't really stop a virus. Yeah, I can't remember when the story about what we were doing changed. But yeah. we started talking about, like, regarding any infection as a sort of failure and I remember thinking probably towards the end of April but I thought we were just trying to I thought we accepted that we couldn't stop infections we were slowing them down and of course yeah. we are going to some people will get infected by this virus yeah it's not nobody's fault and it's not yeah a failing it's inevitable it's part of nature I think yeah but I remember you were one of the first people I saw after lockdown eased yeah. and was it we kids? met outside uh -huh. in my garden mm -hmm. and you came and I remember as soon as you arrived you were sanitizing your hands and your children's hands yeah. we sat outside for a cup of tea very socially distanced and then we didn't know how to give you a cup of tea because <laughs> I know I remember you, that you had I'd brought my own cup <laughs> I know and then we didn't know how to get the tea into your cup. And I think eventually my husband put down the kettle on the patio so that you could pick it up. It's It was all a bit of a palaver. I know, and it feels like we're speaking about a different person. It actually feels like 10 years ago. Yeah. It doesn't feel... And we noticed that like the kids, I mean, my children had not seen another child, basically, yeah. until that day. For, I mean, would that have been 12 weeks? I mean, completely isolated. And they were so... I don't even think... I don't think they were particularly euphoric to be playing. It just seemed so natural. But then I remember I was constantly, initially, saying to them, stay back, stay back, stay back. And eventually, I can't remember who started the conversation, but we well, I decided to... Well, I remember sort of thinking, this, you can't keep the children apart. And I think I also kind of thought at the time, because I'm pretty sure by then... People were saying that children weren't affected and yeah. weren't super spreaders and they weren't uh, big on transmission. And we were outside and I think 
I was kind of waiting for you to sort of acknowledge that maybe it was okay if we kept apart, but the kids kind of just uh-huh. played normally. And they went in the Wendy house. And you were a bit like, oh, I don't think they can all go in the Wendy house. And I was a bit like, I think, I think it's okay. okay. Yeah. But it's funny, I'm not sure even now if all that theatre that I was engaging in was coming from me or whether I thought that I was doing it for you. I can't remember what was going through my mind, but actually when you, when I was like, do you really care about this? And you said no, and you <laughs> said, do you care about it? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. But I can't remember what I said. I honestly can't remember I don't, what I, my feeling was. I, I just kind of remember the kids being in the Wendy house together and they were having fun. Yeah. And somehow just coming to the agreement yeah. that this was what they I needed. I think that might have been the beginning of our yeah. journey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I was always, I've always been quite sort of geeky about child development. And mm-hmm. from my perspective, children interacting and playing is part of their development. It's necessary for their health. Yeah, and it's well-being. not an optional extra. It's no. absolutely essential. And so I was quite distressed about the fact that my children weren't having those opportunities and mm-hmm. so I was and I remember I felt that way as well I was very concerned about their lack of social interaction and I mean yeah. and it was a huge relief when they came to your house and they were all playing in the garden and it was so normal yeah so would that have been in June I think it, it must have been, been about June and then we kind of kept sort of meeting up outside and chatting and I guess just through the course of those chats we started talking about how the con- the dots just weren't really connecting anymore mm-hmm. and how some of the things that were being saying didn't agree with our prior knowledge that we were yeah convinced was sound for me like the whole you know the whole story about covid really from march onwards never made any sense none of it i remember one um, conversation I had with my sister we were talking about numbers in Tayside so Tayside had apparently had very little Covid but Grampian wasn't doing as well or something at that time and I remember thinking my sister was saying that you know it's because the Tayside are saying that their Covid policy has been better and that's how they kept the numbers down and I just remember thinking that doesn't sound right yeah. <laughs> how have they been doing anything so different in Tayside compared to Grampian that doesn't sound reasonable to me at all yeah and and also like hearing about all these different symptoms that people had how covid seemed to present with millions of different symptoms it didn't and now i think i understand that because we define covid as a positive test and so if somebody has a positive test and they have some weird symptom along with it that's been sort of at that time i think that's over the summer just hearing about all these weird and unlikely symptoms of covid and those things really niggled at me and then for me i think a big turning point in my own mind although i didn't really acknowledge it to myself for maybe another month after that was the dominic cummings incident where i got so angry with him about that and i do think that he was a bit of a numpty for doing what he did but then when i stepped back from it and i thought what am i angry with this man about i'm angry with him for going to his family for support when he was ill yeah. I've done that in the past and you know you would never have thought that it was an immoral thing to do and yeah. yet now it was being presented as just being the worst thing that you could ever do and that made me notice that I was making moral 
judgments on people in a completely different way to how I'd done before? I think for me, it was like the news and it was the death toll and the fact that, you know, I can't remember at what point it changed, but it suddenly changed to death within 28 days of a positive test. And something about it just immediately struck me as disingenuous, that it wasn't being... Did people die with symptoms? Did they die without symptoms? How ill were they? Mm-hmm. Was this a secondary effect? And and I felt from that point, I felt that the media was kind of scaremongering a bit and, and playing on figures and it, things just didn't make sense to me anymore. Mm-hmm. Not that COVID isn't a real thing. No, of course. We know it's a real thing. But I, I felt there needed to be more transparency. Yeah. In and also what was happening. Ideally, normally, you would hope that the government would never intentionally scare people. You would always hope to hear reassurance from the government. And I started to notice a distinct change in tone over the summer, where before the government was being very kind and it was saying things like, you know, this is really difficult and this is a very stressful thing to do and we don't want to do this to people. It was in the summer, Nicola Sturgeon came out and started being quite preachy about um, people having gone to the pub in Aberdeen. Do you remember that incident where she said... After the football. Yeah, there had been young people queuing up outside a pub and she had said that... I can't, I can't remember exactly what her words were, but they were very judgmental. She was very judgmental about it. And I thought, hang on a minute. These are young people who are at no risk from COVID. And they're just trying to go to the pub. And I think as well, like I had, I put those kind of stories in the context of how I was feeling with my mental health. Yeah. Because I'm quite a sociable person mm-hmm. and I don't really do very well when I don't have social contact no. with my friends. Mm-hmm. That just isn't a good thing for me. No, I think it's not a good thing for anyone. And so that gave me a bit more compassion for, yeah. for people just I started to, to yeah I started to notice a real lack of compassion for people wanting to behave like humans yeah. over the summertime and I think that's really what started to turn me this making out that it was immoral and selfish to want to interact with people yeah and I felt that was necessary for people mm-hmm. and I had my own um in, I, don't, I don't really know what to call it whether to call it an incident or an experience but I think it was in July I was at home, maybe the end of June, I was at home with the girls for another day at home. And I just had, I started to feel really, really, really panicky. I've never felt like that before. I don't even know, I can't even find the words to describe how I was feeling. But I phoned my sister and she said, you just need to come down and see me right now. And so I went. And it was incredible how much better I felt just from having one night away from our house. And the girls... Um, went to my parents and I got a break from them and they got a break from me and it was just incredible. I felt like a different person the next day. And I don't have any stresses really in lockdown. I'm still at home the way that I normally was. I'm not doing much tutoring, so that's been a big difference. But I don't have the stresses and strains on me that a lot of people have. And I thought if I had an experience like that, what on earth are other people going through? And it was just lack of social interaction. It was lack of variety in my life. It was being stuck in my house all the time. Every day was the same. And I I mean, it was a properly panicky experience. It was really, really unpleasant. 
Yeah. I think things sort of changed for me in the summer when my great aunt, we got phone calls from her nursing home. She lives about a three hour drive from us. And we got a call to say that she was repeatedly unresponsive. She seemed to be sleeping all the time. She wasn't eating all the time and they didn't think it would be long. And so we tried to contact her. And of course, at that point, we weren't allowed in the nursing home at all. And I just felt it was really unfair that when we had been pretty much totally self-isolating, you know, only seeing the occasional person outside, yeah. that we couldn't be with her. You know, I tried to say goodbye to her over the phone with a nurse holding the mobile phone. It felt almost like that that nurse was intruding on my yes. personal moment with my great aunt. And it, it, it was just surreal and it was so heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be with her because the year before she'd, she'd had a stroke and been taken to hospital and I, and I went to the hospital the next day and I was holding her hand and helping her, you know, give her oral care in the hospital to keep her comfortable. To then just not be able to do anything just felt so inhumane. Mm-hmm. Well, it is inhumane. It, it's actually hard to find the words to explain that experience. And then I think after that, I, I'd had sort of breast pain for a few months and it just wasn't going away. And then at that time, you, you kind of were warned off from going to doctors or hospitals. Mm-hmm. You didn't want to go there because you might catch COVID. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't go. I was just kind of ignoring it. And then there was one day where I was just like, I can't ignore this any longer. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I went to my GP. Now, I knew when I called my GP that they would have to examine me. It's not something that they could deal with by telephone, but we had to go through this sort of dance of having a telephone call first before I could then get an appointment. And then when I went for the appointment, the the GP found a lump. Then she said, well, you know, normally you'll need to go to this breast clinic, but normally it's a couple of weeks wait, but it's a lot longer just now because of that. To live with that, worry that panic i was having panic attacks at night and again it just felt so inhumane and like this covid covid patients had been prioritized above every other life-threatening condition it just felt so wrong i mean i was very fortunate in that my husband was able to get me private medical appointments and so actually within a few days i was able to attend a private hospital and and get resolution and find it, find out that it was nothing. But I think it gave me more of an insight into what other people were going through. Yeah, I think that's kind of what prompted me to have the idea of the Scottish Corona Stories page, where I knew people were suffering, and as you say, worse than I was. Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of people, they go for that appointment four weeks later, and they find out that they do have breast cancer. Absolutely. And then they're in this system where COVID has been from the very first point from the very first contact with the doctor, COVID is the first thing that everybody mentions. So you're you're just immediately from the very beginning telling the patient, whether doctors understand or the medical profession understands that's what they're doing or not, I don't know. But that's the effect. 
but yeah. you're just thinking, oh, but it's not COVID, 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 cancer, COVID, COVID, COVID. Yeah, I mean, the appointment I attended and, you know, I have to, to say all the doctors were really kind, the nursing staff were really kind and lovely, but I think that was the first time I realised I lip read quite a lot. There's nothing wrong with my hearing, but I lip read oh. quite a lot. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to this appointment. My husband's not allowed to come in with me and I'm scared mm -hmm. and I don't have him to hold my hand. And there was a real possibility that day that they could have said, this is a cancerous lump. I would have got my biopsy that day, but I was having to face all of that without my husband by my side. In a way, I was just thinking to myself, but he and I are the same level of risk, which is frankly none, yeah. because he's been working from home since before March. Yeah. And we're the one household. So why can he not go in with you? Yeah. I mean, he would have happily worn a mask or worn PPE or whatever. But also, you know, there was there was elements in that appointment where, you know, I kept having to ask the doctor to repeat themselves. And I wasn't really seeing people's full expressions either. It's a really depersonalised experience. Having an appointment with a medical yeah. professional with a mask on. At one of the worst moments potentially in your life. Yeah. You can't see a whole human face, which is what human beings always want. That's the most comforting thing a human can have, is yeah. the sight of a face. And a hand to hold. I know that we've forgotten that. And I think the other thing is, life experience sort of teaches you that not everybody reacts the same to the same situation. So, you know, mm. some people might prefer to go in alone or might prefer to have mm. their mum or... Yeah. But the fact that to treat everybody with the same broad brush. It just doesn't work. Humans aren't like that. No. Yeah, you're quite right. A lot of people, some people would prefer to go into an appointment like that on their own. But for most people, that's not how they want to do it. And it's this removal of any personal choice. Yeah. That is really, really troubling because like you say, we're all individuals and we all want different things and have different preferences. And now we're just all being treated as the same non-human it takes away a lot of your identity as well because I mean, apart from the face being covered when you go into an appointment with your husband for example you're in there because you matter to your husband and your husband matters to you and you're part of your unit yeah and also and, like sometimes your husband will ask questions that you don't yes. think to ask because you're in shock or yeah. you know you're very vulnerable as a patient and yeah. um it can be very helpful to have a friend or a somebody spouse. else to sort of advocate for you yeah. a little bit. Yeah. And also to reinterpret what's been said later because, you know, other another person's perspective on something, a shared experience is always very useful. So that was quite an important experience for you. And that was in July, August? around then late I can't summer. Remember when anything late summer. and I think from there I just felt like lots of people mm -hmm. would be having similar hard experiences mm -hmm. and I think that's when I thought it would be quite a good idea to um yeah start start a Facebook page for for support for people mm -hmm. and I think around that time you had started collating statistics and yeah I've been doing a bit of that all the way through anyway but 
it was the middle of September that um, Malcolm gave me the task of updating us within Scotland Facebook group every day because he was doing a daily stats update and then he was going away to do something and he asked me if I would take over. Right. So I started that, that was the 17th of September, the first time I But you had been making, you'd shown me graphs before that, which, you know, I was a bit shocked at how they differed from the sort of mainstream narrative. Like by June, when I started looking at the statistics, I just couldn't actually believe what I was seeing, you know, um, because we mean, I don't know, when you're in a, a global pandemic and you're all shut down in your homes and you're not allowed to do anything, you could just kind of, I think we sort of assume that a lot of people are dying. And of course, a, a lot of people did die. But when I looked at the statistics for Grampian, you know, by even well, by June, I think we'd had 150 deaths or something. And that just didn't... I mean, I'm not belittling 150 people dying of... COVID and I'm sure that it was, they were very unpleasant deaths because most of them were in care homes and in hospitals and were on their own and it would have been very, um, it, I have enormous sympathy for those 150 deaths but I was surprised that it was 150 because there's a population of about half a million in Grampian. Well I think it was even more than that. At the start of this pandemic I felt like this was going to be the black death, you know I was going to know well, a substantial amount of people. I thought I would know a lot of people who would die. And yeah. I didn't know anybody who died. And then I saw the numbers for Grampian. That was really a turning point for me. I thought 150 people. Yeah. You know. It... Yeah. And I think for me, as a former solicitor, you know, I could see that lockdown and restrictions were impacting people's human rights. And that's not to say that you're not allowed in the case of a public health um, you know, emergency to restrict people's normal human rights, but that that needs to be proportional. Mm -hmm. And what I could see, it didn't feel like it was proportional anymore. No. And that really concerns me. Well, that's the point, isn't it? Like with 150 deaths from COVID, I can't remember what the number was, but it, it was some, it was below 200 anyway. Um, in that time, in a, a population of 500,000 people, how many people will have needed or had a cancer diagnosis? A lot. Yeah. How many people will have died, you know, from accidental deaths in that time? A lot. And so if you're doing, lockdown does things which makes people more vulnerable. And yeah. so if you compare the size of the, there's 150 COVID deaths, okay, but what? how many other traumatic experiences have happened to people because of what we're doing in response to COVID? And I mean, nobody's really counting that number, no. but it can, it must be more than 150. Yeah. I mean, to me, lockdown has impacted every single person's life very significantly yeah. now. So that's 500,000 lives yeah. in Grampian affected. Yeah. And I think everybody's mental health starts to get affected. And then, of course, I think by the end of last summer, we started to hear a bit more about young people who have taken their own lives. Yeah. Um, and then, sadly, older, um, but not by any stretch of the imagination, old people, but older adults who were taking their lives. And I just really, that really concerned me that mm -hmm. people were being put in a position where suicide rates were increasing 
Um, and yeah, it just didn't feel proportional anymore. So I think I wanted to create a kind of space where people could share their mm -hmm. stories so that people could become more aware of the issues yeah. that lockdown were creating and also to support one another. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, while I sometimes have ideas, I rarely do anything about them, but I remember mentioning it to you and <laughs> Sorry. your face kind of lit up and you were like that's a great idea and I thought well is it a great idea yeah. and you were like no it's a great idea mm -hmm. um and then before I knew it you had created a page and <laughs> we were sitting talking about text for the introduction what security and of course neither of us really knew no, how didn't. to do no. any of these things <clears throat> um so we've had a sort of steep learning curve on the admin side of a yeah. facebook page but we we've sort of got through and Immediately when we set it up, we got quite a lot of members. We're sitting at about 800 now, so it's not a huge Facebook group by any stretch of the imagination, but um, we, we got quite a lot of members straight away. And I was so pleased with how it went. I mean, I, I still am. I'm so I'm proud of our Facebook group, actually. We've had a couple of issues with it, but basically it's been a very kind place. And that's what I wanted because... I noticed in June, July and August when I started to see I'm not quite comfortable with this, you know, restricting people's lives like this anymore. And the immediate reaction that I always got was that I was being disappointing. And people, I realised that I was going to be criticised and maligned for that position. And yet, to me, I mean, not to make a poor me statement, I've, I've certainly in the last six months I've never been attacked like I have I've never before in my life been attacked really at all um, but there's been plenty of that has happened to me in the last six months and it, my position is purely because I care so much about what's happening to I people and it, I hate this characterisation yeah. that people who who aren't totally on board with lockdown are automatically selfish and inconsiderate mm -hmm. or that I've changed somehow or that I've, you know, I've, I'm not the same person that I was before because I'm you know, exactly I think, the same. I think having been a solicitor and, and worked in courts, which is an adversarial system, you know, you, you quickly learn that there are two sides to every story. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like society had become so polarised and that, People couldn't really talk to each other. No, people were scared to complain about issues that they'd had in lockdown because it's become such a fake moral issue. People were scared to complain because they thought that people yeah. would call them, they would be called selfish and irresponsible and inconsiderate. Yeah, and, and I don't think anybody's experience in life is irrelevant. Every, every person's story is important and there's always something to be learned from each side. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't mind if people disagree with my position, but I don't want to be attacked for my position. And I think, you know, let's have a rational discussion. Now, the outcome of that discussion might be we'll just have to agree to disagree. We're not going to yeah. see eye to eye on this. But, you know, trolls on the Internet and um, people who have previously been friends 
it's just become so polarized and people just almost feel like they have the right to take the moral high ground and attack the other person because they disagree and I just don't think society should work like that no no it definitely shouldn't and and I find it astonishing I mean, every single day now on my Twitter feed because of who I am and what I'm doing I I mean if I were to tally up how many times I'm called selfish or irresponsible or worse sweary words I couldn't you honestly you couldn't tally them it's constant I get constant abuse I've had twitter threads written about me completely maligning me which are totally baseless in fact um I've got people not talking to me I've got my community apparently very angry with me about my position and it's like hang on what I'm saying is for example some of the stories that we've had on corona stories we've got a mother on there whose son needs regular brain scans to assess the extent of the spread of his tumours in his brain and, and he hasn't out. been able to have them. Yeah. Am I supposed to be okay with that? Am I supposed to say, oh, well, who cares? Because, yeah. you know, we've got this new virus on the loose that kills overwhelmingly elderly people. Am I supposed to be okay with that child's lack of medical care? Or we had the woman who her husband had died on his own after five months of being on his own at the hospital of cancer. Yeah. And she and her sons couldn't see him. Am I supposed to just say, well, that doesn't really matter to me because I'm a nice person who likes lockdown. Is that the position that we're supposed to take? It's I, insane to me. I just, it's insane. I, I just don't know how people can hear stories like that without compassion and empathy. And because I think at some point, the longer these restrictions go on... The, every single person is going to have a horrible story. Yeah, the more everybody's going to have something mm. that has really affected them. Yeah. Um, and you know for me my my mum hasn't been too well and um has dementia and I thought Christmas would be our last sort of Christmas together where because we think she might need to be in care in future Christmases and the fact that we couldn't have that was deeply upsetting to me yeah um and I think a lot of people have sort of jumped on the bandwagon of there would be other Christmases and, you know, but not no, everybody... Nobody knows how many Christmases they've got left. No, and <laughs> not, and some people are fairly sure they don't. Well, yes, and a lot of people have very few Christmases left. Yeah. And these, like, Christmas matters. You know, these, the, the whole point of having traditional celebrations that are like landmarks in the year is to form memories and so for me like when I think about my childhood I think one of the major things about my childhood was Christmas at my grandparents because we had that every year even if we it wasn't on Christmas day we had like the Christmas day celebration either the weekend before Christmas or actually Christmas and because that was a constant thing that happened every year in my childhood it's yeah. an important memory but now we've disrupted one Christmas and I think it's highly probable that we're going to disrupt next Christmas as well. So yeah. there, that's my children who are seven and ten. They're going to have two Christmases missing from their memory. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not okay. That's, and the thing is, if people were to say, look, this really, 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 really sucks and it's horrendous the things that we're doing to people, but we have to do it because this virus is so dangerous, then that would be a discussion that you can have. 
Yeah. But as it is now, you're just immediately shut down for having any sceptical views at all. Yeah. Because yeah. you're not allowed to ask the question. And how people who do that shutting down and immediate dismissal of any other views who are on the other side, how they can do that is starting to be beyond my comprehension. That they, they can't see the danger of not asking the question. Yeah. Even if the answer to the question is an answer that we don't that we on our side of the argument don't like, we should be allowed to have the I conversation. Mean, I'm I'm not completely opposed to lockdown if I feel it's necessary, if if I was convinced that the data, the information mm -hmm. was favourable to that. But I quite often don't feel like or you know, over the past six months. I didn't really feel that that was perhaps proportional. Um, yeah, it's it's a very difficult situation. Mm. So do you feel that Scottish Corona Stories has been a success? Yes. Yeah. I think it's been hugely successful and it makes me... I mean, some of the stories have just made me weep when they've come in you know, because we, we approve everything before it goes on. And I remember reading one of them. It was just so awful. And I remember being really badly, well, not, but I was really affected by it. And then when it went on, everybody was so kind to the poster. And actually quite a lot of practical help was offered to her. And I think we got her some help. She received some assistance. But just knowing that people cared about her story and isn't that sad that she had, I mean, she said she said that to us, I think, didn't she, in her yeah. comments. Just thinking that she had previously thought that people didn't care about her story yeah. shows you how far society has fallen. Yeah. That, And it really has fallen. Yeah. I mean, in my view. I think I've been overwhelmed by how kind people have been to to one another. I mean, there's been a couple of incidents where we've had to intervene. As always happens on our Facebook page. But it, I think it's been surprisingly rare. Yes, we've hardly had any trouble at all. Um, we probably shouldn't say that, probably tempted fate. But, and, you know, I think people have reached out to help one another. Mm -hmm. um, there's and been some private messaging going on between people on the page, which yeah. is really nice to yeah. hear. And, you know, personally, I've tried to help people where I can. I don't know how much help I've been, but I, I do try. And, you know, people have been so grateful. Mm -hmm. And I'm amazed, actually, at how many people have opened up about their difficult personal circumstances. Yeah, really open and honest. So, yeah, on the whole, I would say I was quite proud of it. Mm -hmm. And I think you mentioned earlier that it's quite a small group. Well, it's... actually, I quite like the fact it's got more quality over quantity. Mm -hmm. um, I think if it became too big, it would perhaps lose some of its yeah. good characteristics. And it's yeah. And you see the same faces over and over and over again on there. Um, and they become like, I have made friends on Facebook through the Us For Them Scotland group in the Corona Stories page because um, yeah there's just faces that you see every time and there's people who stand out as being particularly warm and kind you know replies and um, knowledgeable and yeah you've yeah we've found quite a few really useful people who've been very 
um, like yeah, you just you find out what people's skills are, and some people really do stand out. Um, they've made quite a lot of. It, it sounds strange to say that you know, just a sort of icon on a Facebook page become it feels like a friend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and some of them I have spoken to now on the phone, and we've done private messaging things, and there are people who I would actually reach out to. There are people, yeah. you know, um, it's been really good. But sometimes we find. Everybody who's joined more or less has said yes, they have a story and the questionnaire that we ask. But we certainly haven't got everybody's story, which was why the idea came into my head also. I think through speaking to people on the phone, it's so often when I hear people's stories on the phone, I think, oh my goodness, I wish we were recording this. Because it's so powerful what this person's saying. And if only you know, people who disagree with me could just listen to this person for five minutes mm -hmm. and just see what I see. Um, and that was where I, I then put the post up saying would people like to do interviews and we could make this into a podcast. And I actually got a really, really favourable response and lots yeah. of people replied. So that was where the idea for the spoken word Corona stories. Yeah, I think it's a good idea and I think it's a, a good development um, and uh, and... I don't know if I'm looking forward to, but I, I'm always learning about new problems mm -hmm. and disadvantages that people have been at because of the restrictions that I possibly had no awareness yeah. of before. So I'm constantly learning mm -hmm. and, you know, I really value every contribution that we've had, mm -hmm. um, even although it's sometimes really hard to hear. Oh God, it's still some of them have been excruciatingly painful to read and I think some of them will be excruciatingly, pain, excruciatingly painful to listen to as well but I think necessary yeah because the whole world has become so one-sided to me as I see it and we need to get alternative information out there absolutely there's a lot of people in a lot of pain there is a lot of people in a lot of pain and i i thought maybe just to sort of finish up with um i know that some of the trolls that you've had on twitter and things have sort of said that we're in the pockets of some greater being and yeah i've been accused of that a lot i haven't been accused of that yet mm. but i would never um say that that would definitely never happen that you would be accused yeah mm -hmm. um so what would you like to say are you being paid to proffer a different view no i am definitely not being paid i have had absolutely no offers of payment from anybody and if i did get offered payment i would not accept it because i don't want to be influenced in my view mm -hmm. that's not what this is about at all and I think that maybe some of the malicious people on Twitter who are maligning me um, and threatening me has now started maybe they just can't believe that somebody would put as much effort and time into what I'm doing as I am for free and maybe that's because I'm insane or something but um, I feel almost like it's a, a little bit of a calling but I, have, I have these skills, I have a bit of time mm -hmm. because I'm not working mm -hmm. and therefore I feel that 
if it contributes to the greater good, I should use those skills. Well, I don't want to look my children in the eye in five years' time when we're still living like this. And they say, you know, what did you do? And I say, well, I just didn't do... I just followed the rules and I didn't ask any questions. Yeah, and I didn't listen to the people who were in pain. And I just shut myself away in our house and did my best to educate you on global classrooms. I don't think so. That's not... I don't think that's what I arrived on Earth to do. I don't think that's what anybody arrived. Yeah, I think, you know, empathy and compassion is really a fundamental, important part of society. And I think those empathy and compassionate voices need to be heard. Mm -hmm. On both sides of the argument. Okay. Okay. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll join us again soon.